They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you! Look! There comes one of them now! Welcome to Feed vs. the Living Dead, the podcast where your host, Feed the Terrible Aussie Jemine, explores the remakes, re-edits, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to George A. Romero's classic 1968 horror film, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes Morgues and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. This podcast contains coarse language, mature discussions, and plot spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. G'day everyone and welcome to the inaugural episode one of Bede vs. the Living Dead, where you, where I, your host, Bede Jemine, a.k.a. D. Terribility, go into a deep dive into every remake, re-edit, reimagining, homage, unofficial follow-up, and so much more on George A. Marrero's classic 1968 horror masterpiece, Night of the Living Dead. And before we go any further, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this debut episode of the show. I'm really happy that you're going on this journey with me to talk about all these many different versions of Night of the Living Dead. But before we go on that journey, we're going to start from the very beginning. So for this debut episode, we're going to be talking about the original 1968 classic that started all these different versions of the film. And for this episode, I decided to bring in the experts. I brought three really good friends of mine who are joining me to talk about the classic that is the original 1968 version of Night of the Living Dead. And they're all here with me right now to discuss it. First up, of course, is someone who who is my bestie in real life and is also my co-host on many of the podcasts over on the Super Network and is also the head honcho of the website supermarcy.com and that of course is the one the only super marcy hello marcy how are you hello hello and uh congrats on uh this launch of or first official episode of your very own podcast indeed indeed thank you for so much for saying that marcy and it's also kind of weird that this is the first time you're actually guesting on a show that i'm doing usually it's always the other way around yes usually we're just co-hosting or you've been on the occasional uh, after dark with super marcy episode but uh, this is the it's... first time i'm actually your guest on a podcast and i'm very indeed. excited indeed indeed but we're also not alone because we have two no. other very awesome guests who are joining us for this episode uh second up is somebody who is a regular contributor to supermarcy.com and that is our good friend marcus will turner hello marcus how are you I'm good and gravy. How you doing, bud? Oh, not too bad, thanks, mate. How are things going on your end of the world? Oh, well, you know, one day at a time and enjoying this, you know, very spooky and somber, you know, Halloween season. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I think we've picked the right movie to discuss that since it kind of <laughs> incorporates all those elements that you just discussed. And finally, our third and final guest is someone who is one of my really good friends and and as well as a writer and blogger. And that, of course, is Derek Smith. Hello, Derek. How are you? Doing great, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, definitely excited to join in on this uh, first deep dive into the, the Living Dead series. 
Indeed, indeed. So we're going to be covering a lot on this debut episode of Night of the Living Dead. I mean, as I was saying to you guys before the recording, I have never done so much research (laughs) on a film in my entire life than it is on Night of the Living Dead. I have like all my notes that I'm looking at right now on my phone could literally just be an entire novel on this (laughs) on this film. So, I mean, we have a lot to discuss because, I mean, it is Night of the Living Dead. I mean, there is so much to discuss about this film. But before we do, I have a very important question I'm going to ask all three of you. And this is a question I'm going to ask for every new guest that comes on this show are you guys ready for the question and that is when was the first time you saw night of the living dead marcy when was the first time you saw this film yeah good question to ask everybody uh so for me i believe it was probably mid to late teens and being you know a film nerd getting into all the uh horror and trying to better my knowledge on horror films like Night of the Living Dead was one that popped up quite a lot. So it was one that I wanted to see. And I do believe I did see the DVD for sale. Like, this is very early in the DVD days. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. I could finally watch this movie. I bought it. What I didn't quite realise at the time was the version I got um, that was on DVD was the 30th anniversary edition uh, so when oh, I watched geez. it, yeah, so when I watched it, there was all this additional stuff and I'm watching it going, wow, this feels a little disjointed. Why does the stuff look so different to the other stuff? And then I, of course, clicked that it, there was like bonus edit, like it was a different edit really with extra new scenes that were filmed for it, which you will then uh, talk about on a future episode. Uh, then I went back and watched it in the original format and yeah, like it's always been kind of a film that I really love a lot and think is excellent. And uh, like on sort of viewing it those first few times, like even back then in the sort of like, um, I would say maybe very early 2000s or so, uh, seeing a film that was made like in the late 60s, like it felt very kind of ahead of its time and just a lot of the themes that were in there really interesting and then of course reading up more about it and uh discovering the other films of the late great george romero awesome well that i mean i have to say that is quite the way to start off your introduction to this mm. film is by watching the infamous 30th anniversary edition of right. this film, which right. you may or may not have recently given to me as a gift to say yes i still <laughs> i still had that dvd and going through my collection, like, it was there. And it's like, here you go, bead. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> I don't need this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you found the perfect opportunity to give me that film. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And, uh, Marcus, when was the first time you saw Night of the Living Dead? You know, strangely enough, I actually watched it in theaters, like, the very first time. Um, Ooh. I was actually watching a sneak preview of Walking Tall, you know that movie with uh, with The Rock and Neil McDonough. Yes. <laughs> it was uh, one of those special screenings, uh, I believe, on a Saturday. And um, after the movie, because the movie is very very short, we had get, get an announcement over, I guess, you know, the you know, a PA system or, or something. And uh, it, it's the manager of the movie theater telling us that if we want to stay, we're going to be seeing a a classic film. And they didn't want to tell us what it was. 
And um, I remember, like, I don't know, maybe a few people leaving, but the theater was packed, so everyone just pretty much stayed. And then it w- it turned out to be a Night of Living Dead. And um, I had never seen it. I'd only, like, heard it referenced, like, so many times and, you know, other films and articles and even video games. And, you know, never experienced it. And uh, I have to admit, the seeing it on the big screen, you know, the the way that it was, and because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a restored version. It was like the still kind of like grainy, kind of textured, you know, version of it. You know, kind of faded and everything like that. It was, uh, it was very incredible. I didn't expect for it to be. I honestly thought I wasn't really going to enjoy the film at all because, you know, I I love classic films, but you know, much like. A lot of the films that come out nowadays and everything, some some of them are very much an acquired taste. So I thought that this one was going to be, you know, kind of the same, you know, situation. But it was it was great. The entire crowd loved it. You know, even though a majority of them had already seen it, you know, they still didn't mind seeing it again. And uh, after that, I pretty much like just kind of went back to all the times like it was referenced in other movies and and stuff like that and and it's funny like when you watch a film like this you notice like so much of what you see in other films is based off of this so i think that was like one of the most interesting things about like my first experience was like just seeing like where a lot of these other films like get their ideas and concepts and and shots and stuff like that from so it's a uh, it was a it was a great experience. Oh well, that I, I find that just such a weird double feature, like Night of the Living really Dead and Walking Tall. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> I, I still laugh about it to this day. It's like one of the strangest <laughs> double features I've ever had in my life. So that definitely would have been. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. But uh, Derek, what when was the first time you saw Night of the Living Dead? So uh, that's kind of a funny story. So um, when I was a kid, I was scared of everything like horror movie trailers would give me nightmares for weeks. So even though I'm a horror fan now and I can watch just about anything uh, at that time, I did not go near horror like to the point where i would i was at a friend's birthday party and they watched the goonies and i thought they said the ghoulies and so i sat in the other room (laughs) for the duration of the movie so that being said not until i was around like 11 or 12 that i had really started to dip my toe into the horror world um and so i am a little bit older than you guys um uh, but uh, so 11 or 12 this is like 91 92 we still had uhf uh tv stations and one of our local channels channel 12 it was based out of portland oregon um they would play a lot of the universal movies the old black and white godzilla movies and they would play night of the living dead and I saw it from there, and but it still didn't quite click with me because I didn't really have the history behind it at all. And then uh, the time that it actually did really kind of click with me was actually in 95. I was budding little metalhead and uh, super into White Zombie, the band. Uh, this was before Rob Zombie it went on his solo stuff. And he actually, in preps for their new album, they actually did a tie-in uh, TV appearance on Sci-Fi Channel um, called Zombie A Go-Go. 
This is a zombie. The living dead. This is also a zombie. Join white zombie frontman Rob Zombie for five nights of festering flesh, grinning ghouls, crawling corpses, and carnivorous creeps. Here they come! Plus, go behind the scenes for the making of the latest white zombie video. It's zombies, it's rock and roll, it's zombie a go-go on Sci-Fi Channel. Begins Monday at 9, 6 Pacific. And he did, it was like a five night event where he picked like these different movies and he would like have like in our little uh, commercial breaks where he would talk about the movie, making fun of some of them, uh, (laughs) giving some historical content to some of the other ones that he really liked. Um, But he ended up showing uh, White Zombie, Carnival Souls, the, the original Evil Dead, Night of the Creeps and Night of the Living Dead. Um, I didn't catch all of the nights of the show, but Night of the Living Dead was one that I did catch. And just watching that, getting a little bit of the historical background from it, it really clicked that time for me. And I just kind of started to really love it. And then that kind of spurred on my, you know, wanting to dive more into the world of Romero's zombie stuff. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad I heard all these stories because it just kind of shows that all of us have different experiences with this film, like our first introduction to this film. And I mean, I've already talked about my introduction to uh, this film on the introduction episode, which you can also listen uh, back pr- prior to this one. So it's kind of interesting to me hearing other people's experiences the first time they watch this film. Now, without with that out of the way... We'll dive straight into Night of the Living Dead right now. Welcome to a night of total terror. (coughs) Night of the Living Dead, the dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. adventure in fear. An experience in shock, more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror. Night of the Living Dead. Of course, night, the original 1968 version of Night of the Living Dead was directed by the legendary George A. Romero from a screenplay by John Russo and George A. Romero. And this film stars Dwayne Jones, Judith O'Day, Marilyn Eastman, Carl Heidman, Judith Ridley, and Keith Wayne. And the plot summary for this one, which I am reading off IMDb, is as follows. 
A ragtag group of Pennsylvanians barricade themselves in an old farmhouse to remain safe from a horde of flesh-eating ghouls that are ravaging the east coast of the United States. Now, I'll kick things off by talking about this film. Like, I've seen Night of the Living Dead quite a lot over the years. I mean, like any horror fan. So it always amazes me how much power this film has. Like, even though this film came out almost 55 years ago, it still has a power to it, and it is also still incredibly relevant as a film. There's also a timeless quality to this film as well, because at the time, of course, when George A. Romero and his cast and crew made it, this was around the height of the Vietnam War. So a lot of things were going on in the world politically, socially. So a lot of those elements are definitely sprinkled throughout this film, but using that in a subtextual element within the story about these group of people who hide out in a house being attacked by, at the time when this film was released, flesh-eating ghouls, but of course would eventually evolve into zombies. So re-watching this film again in prep for, you know, this debut episode, like I'm still, again, stunned, like I said before, how relevant this film is and how timeless it is. But it's it still amazes me that this is the film that, not only is it one of the greatest horror films ever made, it, it kick-started an entire subgenre. Now, you know, up to this point, we have seen many different types of monsters in cinema, like vampires, werewolves, or Frankenstein's monster, and many others. But, you know, a lot of those kind of creatures kind of started off in either literature or mythology. And while zombies were definitely around, but they were kind of very different from the how the zombies were portrayed in this film. Because most of the time... With example, like films like White Zombie or I Walked With a Zombie, the zombies were kind of more of voodoo origin in terms of Mm. how they're portrayed. But what George A. Romero and his cast and crew did, they created an entire new creature. And again, throughout the production of the film, they called them ghouls. But the thing is, though, when you watch this film, you're literally seeing the birth of not only of a new creature in horror, but also horror changing forever because this film kind of changed the game in so many ways and also created an entire new subgenre in film those are kind of my initial thoughts on the film but it kind of just stuns me every time i watch this film just seeing that like seeing this film doing everything first and even sort of creating the zombie rules that we all know and love they are still very prevalent in this film like yeah some little inconsistencies here and there that would be more refined as you know as the subgenre would go on but it just amazes me as a film it still has a lot of power to it it's still very relevant today given everything that's been going on in the world, especially in the last few years. And it just still packs a punch every time I watch it, especially at the end. And it's still an amazing film. And I- I'm very excited to kind of go deep into this film. But uh, Marcy, what are your current thoughts on it, this film? Yeah, look, it is something I've seen several times. Uh, and as mentioned, uh, <laughs> not even watching the proper version the first time. But yeah, I agree with everything you said and kind of reflects my thoughts and feelings on it. It does kind of have this timeless feel to it. And the version that I have now is the uh, Umbrella, which is an Australian label, their Blu-ray release of it. And yeah, just like that, just that Blu-ray quality of it. Like it looks like it was shot like 20 years ago, not like over 50 years ago. 
and I can only imagine like you know even more restored prints would even look more amazing but yeah just something like yeah just like that rewatch and you know kind of remembering and seeing just how like excellent it it looks you kind of like are reminded of too at least for me that you know a lot of films wouldn't really exist if it wasn't for Night of the Living Dead especially when you sort of understand like how this was made and kind of how it got this kind of infamous status and stuff like I couldn't imagine something like say just off the top of my head like the Evil Dead for example uh, existing without having Night of the Living Dead and you can see like so many influences that this film had and it quite the interesting story about how it just ended up in the public domain hence there are a billion versions of it as Bede will be discussing on this podcast series Um, indeed I will yes but again like I think that's kind of the power of the film because you can have anything in the public domain but if it's not great why would you kind of use it uh and this obviously is great it is a just I think it's just an overall fantastic film like it is really well paced it's well acted and you can definitely see like even though George Romero has been kind of like oh yeah this kind of subtext and blah 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 kind of accidental and I'm thinking no it's totally not accidental I feel like as this film progressed like during the making of I think things were added to it because they could see what they had and especially when you look at Dwayne Jones as Ben he is like the hero of the story and Romero says you know he just cast him because he was the best for the job but having him in this role like definitely changes a lot of things and you you know you'd be stupid not to kind of add a lot of the subtext in there to really express uh, a lot of things and that's what I find kind of fascinating and that it still just holds up like that ending every time like I just want to fucking go on a rampage because it pisses me off with what happens and unfortunately we still see that kind of shit every fucking day but yes I feel like I'm talking too much so (laughs) uh Marcus uh what are your current thoughts on this film you know it's funny I have watched this film plenty of times and I swear like every time I watch it I always find something new about it that I didn't notice before you know it's it's like every time I you know press that button and, and and play it it's it, it's almost as if I'm watching a different film from a different perspective, which really just shows kind of like the power of it, you know, as, as you, you know, alluded to earlier, you know, it's, um, for me, it, it shifts so much as far as like, you know, it's tone, it's atmosphere, you know, it's, it's commentary, you know, as, uh, as Marcy pointed out, you know, you can't help but to, just see all the nooks and crannies of it, you know, every time in, in different formats. I think it's probably one of the main reasons why there are so many different versions of this film. You know, you, it, it's, it's always taken from someone else's, you know, standpoint and then re, you know, revised or revitalized or redone or, or something like that. And, you know, the, the, the original, you know, foundation of it, you know, stays the same. It's a great film that just continues to evolve 
much like you know horror as a genre or you know you know let's just say cinema in general you know it keeps evolving you know as a film as a project as a uh, you know with underlying topics and themes you know it, it keeps evolving as a landmark of cinema storytelling filmmaking you know it, it just continuously does that and i think that's probably one of the main reasons why it still holds up so well today you know it it it, it just keeps going and you know for me personally i've watched this film and i've taken it from different perspectives myself uh, as a as a horror fan as you know just a, a casual observer as an african-american male you can't help but to just see all the different layers of it and i think in a way that's why it continues to be brilliant it may have been like the first of its kind but it just continues to be one of a kind which is why all so many other projects and features are just continuously try to like find its footing on its own, but also embrace and capture what, you know, what this one did. I don't know. I just, uh, it's, it's, it's just something to behold, I guess. Oh, for sure. Like it's, it's, it's interesting, like seeing the many different layers throughout this mm-hmm. entire film. It's kind of takes, as you say, Marcus, it takes so many different perspectives on so many things. And you could read a lot into this film. Like, again, like with everything that happens within the story is very uh, subtextual in terms of its story. But there's so much going on underneath that because, you know, again, this film could be read as about the Vietnam War or or about revolution or about race. Like there's so many different elements within this film that. Anyone who's watching it, regardless on your background and all that, can read different things in this film. And in a way, they're all kind of are correct because this film kind of tackles so much. But yet it's not a film that even though like George A. Romero as a filmmaker, he's a very political guy. And even before he actually made this film, he did do he did ad campaigns for local politicians. But my favorite thing, of course, is like before he even started work on this film, he worked on uh uh, Mr. on the Mr. Rogers show prior to <laughs> working on this film. So it's kind of interesting to me that like he is definitely a very political guy who wanted to say a lot within this film. And I think he achieves that, but but doesn't in a way that there's all so but bringing a lot of different layers to it as well. And uh, Derek, what do you what are your current thoughts on this film? So my current thoughts are for a movie that is so simplistic in its nature we have really we have the graveyard we have the the barn or the the farmhouse inside the downstairs and then we have outside of the farmhouse those three locations and yet this movie has spawned so much there's just it, it there's such so many great discussions about it there's so many great movies that are inspired by it there's so many great movies that have included it in their own movie as people are enjoying the movie <laughs> like we <laughs> we see we see it pop up you know all over the place but it's crazy to me that something that simplistic that it, where we have like three locations just a handful of actors all you know and most of them were producers of the film themselves. Mm, indeed. Um, they're all coming from an advertising background. And 
yet they built this that you know we're talking about it 50 plus years later that that's it boggles the mind that something that simple has grown and blown up that much for me yeah it's kind of it's kind of interesting kind of reading like the the reviews of this film back at the time because a lot of people kind of dismissed the film as being another kind of exploitation film and what is even more interesting to me is that when this film came out on October 1st 1968 it literally came out a month before the MPAA was born so <laughs> it's kind of I don't I'm not going to say like Night of the Living Dead was the reason the MPAA was born but I'm not going to deny it either <laughs> that's just my opinion but it's kind of interesting to me like going into this film see how audiences would have reacted mm. to this film like roger ebert in his review of this film talked about going to a matinee screening of night of the living dead and matinee screenings of course a lot of kids would go to those because they were mm-hmm. expecting to watch another b-grade fun sci-fi movie and in his um in his review pretty much describes how that it pretty much was that for a lot of the kids in this film in the first half, but then once the scene when the zombies start chowing down on human bodies comes in, that's when the mood just mm-hmm. completely changed. And he said that pretty much like all the kids basically started crying by the end of it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and it's hard to understand why, because again, it's I guess when people go into this film, they think, oh, it's just going to be, you know, you're just normal average B horror film. But there's a lot more to it, and it definitely has a lot of power, and it is very bleak in its approach, because this is a film where every main character dies by the end of it. Spoiler alert for a 50-plus-year-old movie, Bede. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) But, and also, like, how the deaths kind of happen, they just happen suddenly as well. It's not like a big, like, hero moment or anything like that. Like, the characters, when, like, for example... uh, the two young lovers in the film, uh, the young couple, I should say, who were played by uh, Keith Wayne and Judith Ridley, who are, of course, the characters Tom and Judy, they pretty much die pretty quickly. They get caught up, you know, trying to save everyone in the tr- with the truck. Then, of course, uh, Judy's jacket gets caught, and then Tom goes back to save her, and then, boom, the truck just blows up. And it just <laughs> happens so suddenly. Mm. And um, it's, it's just... A, for me, it's just, I could definitely see because this film in a lot of ways kind of subverts expectations mm. as well. Like, again, you know, the, all the main characters die at the end. Characters who you think are making the right decisions end up being, making the wrong decisions. And it's a very violent and dark film. I could definitely see why <laughs> why this film had a lot of controversy at the time it's released because it is a very full-on film. And it's very oh, reminiscent yeah. of the last couple of years. Not gonna lie. Yeah, that's... Well, that too, that too. So, but it's interesting kind of in the last two years, given with, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and especially back in 2000 when also the the Black Lives Matter movement was also happening as well. It's kind of interesting kind of watching this film with given the last few years and just seeing so much of that stuff just kind of weave into this film, like, like, you know, 55 years beforehand. That's what makes this film really interesting is it is still very relevant. Like, (laughs) I mean, this is a film where characters basically say we got to stay in this house. We can't go outside. There's infected people. We could die. So it's it's kind of interesting in that way. But um, but there is so much to talk about this film. I think we need to talk about 
I think one of the things I love about this film is, of course, the beginning of this film, which kind of sets the tone of everything with that very eerie music with um, Barbara and Johnny's car just going up to the cemetery. And what's interesting is all the music that's played throughout this film is archival music. This, this film was so low budget that they had to get archival music for this film and take it from other films. But even then, though, the music that is used throughout this entire film, even though it's from different films, it's very consistent with each other, which I find really interesting. But it also adds an eeriness to it as well, especially uh, at the beginning of the film, when, of course, once the characters of Barbara and Johnny go to the cemetery, and then they have that first run-in with the zombie, which uh, this who was played by Bill Hinsman, like it is, you don't know, like if you were going into this film for the first time without knowing anything about it, you are not sure what is happening. Like, who is this guy? Why is he attacking uh, this brother and sister? And it kind of just really sets the tone for the film. And of course, you know, it has the most one of the most famous lines in all of cinema history with they're coming to get you, Barbara. I wonder what happened to the one from last year. Each year we spend good money on these things. We come out here and the one from last year's gone. Well, the flowers die and the caretaker or somebody takes them away. Yeah, a little spit and polish, you can clean this up. Sell it next year. Wonder how many times we bought the same one. Hey, come on, Barb. Church was this morning, huh? I mean, praying's for church, huh? Come on. I haven't seen you in church lately. <laughs> well, there's not much sense in my going to church. Do you remember one time when we were small, we were out here? It was from right over there. I jumped out at you from behind the tree, and Grandpa got all excited, and he shook his fist at me, and he said, Boy, you'll be damned to hell. <laughs> remember that? Right over there. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. Well, you're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. So, <laughs> they're coming as for Nic you, Barbara. <laughs> or as uh, Nicholas Cage was like, they're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> Look, here comes one of them now. <laughs> But uh, I, I want to know what did you guys what are you guys feelings on the opening of this film? Like, does it really kind of do, do a good job at setting the tone of what this film uh, does throughout the rest of it? Yeah, it's an interesting way to start the film because we are only then left with one of the two characters and kind of the setting. We're in a cemetery and we kind of get a glimpse of uh, what the hell might be going on and you know, Barbara has to escape. So I think it's an interesting way to kick off the film. Like, I do like how it opens, and it is so memorable and iconic. Yeah. But an interesting thing, too, and I sort of um, was while while researching this film, particularly the documentary Birth of the Living Dead, which is about the making and legacy of this film. So if people, definitely all of our listeners should go check that out. But what's interesting, though, about that scene, especially Johnny kind of teasing Barbara about they're coming to get you in an interesting way the movie is kind of like a meta horror film because it does talk a little bit about horror in that regard because you know it's Johnny trying to scare mm. Barbara by doing all these all the creepy things he used to tease about her as 
kids. So it's kind of an interesting thing, like looking at it that regard. Mm. Bring you back to Derek's point about how low budget of a film this film was. Uh, Johnny was played by Russell Steiner, who was the producer of this film. And and a lot of the actors in this film were, of course, either were producers or makeup artists and all that, like uh, uh, Marilyn Eason and Carl Hardman, who were both married in real life at the time when they made this film. Not only did they play the characters of Harry and Helen Cooper, they were also the producers and they even did some of the makeup work on this film. And even a lot of the actors played multiple roles like Marilyn Eastman. Mm. Not only played Helen, she also played the bug-eating zombie that you see throughout the film as well. But uh, I actually think that opening was the last thing to be shot, or one of the last. I believe it might have been, yeah, from what I remember. Sorry, but, uh, off but, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but um, Marcus, what did you think of the opening of this film? You know, this is actually one of those times I kind of wished that it took kind of a modernized approach to showing the title because you know how sometimes when we watch these films like they'll do the title at the end of the movie you know um i feel like when the title pops up and it's you know night of living dead you already kind of feel at ease uh, you know not at ease you know at unease (laughs) you know and everything just kind of goes from there and kind of you know builds into this this very like this this thick you know, kind of tension, but I, I, I oftentimes think about like, what if they didn't put the title at the beginning of the movie and you just kind of go into it blind, you know, it, it, it really just like adds like an extra like layer of dread to a, a very, like very small, you know, unassuming situation. You know, it's just a brother and sister going to visit, you know, their father's grave and, you know, they're talking about, you know, making the trip and, you know, it's very, very casual. It isn't until this strange man shows up that it just jolts into something else. And it's it's a very, very like potent and, and, and I dare say very masterful, you know, beginning of a film because it really just kind of brings you in like very unexpectedly, but also expectedly. <laughs> you know if that makes sense <laughs> and every time i watch that opening it, it always kind of like draws me back a little bit because you you think that this movie is just going to be about barbara you know trying to you know outrun this you know this very strange and dangerous man who you know who hurt her brother and then it isn't until she gets to the house that the that the movie kind of changes again and 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 I always kind of loved that that transition because, you know, like I said, you know, earlier about, you know, this film always evolving, like the story itself continuously does that. Goes from, you know, Barbara's perspective to Ben's perspective to uh, the Cooper's, you know, expect, you know, uh, perspectives. And then it, it just keeps continuously shifting throughout the film. But to, to start with Barbara, you know, it, it it really just kind of like lends this 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 air of doom <laughs> into the atmosphere, along with, of course, like you said, you know, the music and the um uh, the, the the lightning storm like in the background. You know, that doesn't exactly like get to everyone, but it's just in the distance because you can always just you know hear it. It definitely works uh, really well as you know a beginning of a film and. 
and to, and to this day, I, I, it's it's very rare that another film actually kind of, you know, captures that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me about I get like you say, Marcus. It it's one of the perfect openings to a horror film because it immediately grabs your attention right away. Like it starts off with that uneasy, eerie feeling to it. And you get introduced to this brother and sister uh, who have a pretty interesting kind of relationship with each other. And they do have a lot of charisma between them. And of course, like you got the cemetery zombie who's just wandering around the background, which I always find very creepy, especially in a, this recent rewatch of the film, because you know, as Barbara and Johnny are talking, He's just wandering in the background and there's there's a very there's a creepiness to it. And if you're watching this film for the first time, and I actually do agree with you, like I think the movie would even have more power if it didn't have the title at the beginning of it. Like you just go into it not knowing anything. And then all of a sudden, when this guy just attacks Johnny and Barbara, like you just completely put off guard because you think, oh, it's just some guy visiting the cemetery. No big deal. And then it just, the mood just completely goes different when that happens and of course it kind of takes everything from there and then again like you say it has barbara being our point of view character throughout the first half and then once she gets to the house and then once we're introduced to all the many other characters that's when she kind of goes into the background and she doesn't really become the main focus for most of the film she's just a part of this ensemble of characters but uh, uh, Derek, what 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 are your thoughts on the opening of this film? So one of the things that makes me laugh is a lot of the horror discourse right now is people upset that so many current films are based around trauma and they're mm. informed by trauma. This movie starts at the graveyard where they're coming to visit their father we know somebody is already they've lost somebody very important to them this is something they this is their yearly visit this isn't the first time that they've come this is something that they're already at oh, a bad place they've had that trauma in their life they've lost somebody very important whereas johnny deals with things you know in a comedic atmosphere he has to crack jokes the whole time and point out, you know, hey, why can't we just reuse the same uh, uh, centerpiece that, uh, that we all, that we always do? Why do we have to bring a new one every year? <laughs> it, it, that it, that's his way of dealing with the trauma. Whereas hers, she's she's broken down. She's you can tell she's uneasy. Just that whole opening sequence with them, you you get you learn so much from the character without of a lot of exposition we know that they've lost so much so as her brother becomes attacked and she runs away from this strange man we know that you know she's just compounding all this trauma (laughs) and it's of no you know no question later on while she's basically mute as she's just like in shock from the whole situation and that it's so it just boggles my mind that so many people like strike out against trauma in the movies. Yet this is a prime example, and this is one of the pioneer horror films for that. Yeah, and it's also kind of very believable in how it portrays trauma because, like, you know, in my early years of watching this film, when you see Barbara as a character throughout this film, like younger version of me it's like oh barbara's a useless character she doesn't 
do anything to help out or she barely does anything to help out. But the the older I get and the more I know, whether it's for myself personally or for other people's experiences when it comes to trauma, like it's a very believable situation because again, she just watched her brother get killed. She's been chased by this man who she doesn't know who wants to kill her. Of course, once she gets to the farmhouse, which we will definitely talk about in a second, she discovers there's a a partially eaten dead body upstairs. You can't blame her for shutting down completely throughout this entire film. And of course, like she'll have, yeah, she, and you also know that like, she definitely has a moment where of course, later in the film, like she has a moment, she feels like, oh, Johnny's alive. I need to go get him. We need to go back and Ben's reassuring of now he's dead there's nothing you can do and then she get becomes so hysterical that she slaps ben and then ben has to knock her out to calm her down and i know this for a fact that uh dwayne jones who plays ben felt very uneasy about doing that scene because he didn't want to slap the character but but they had to so it's kind of but then of course once she wakes up and she's in that kind of state of just being withdrawn and detached from everything so like as a character like younger version of me didn't really respond to barbara as a character but now being older i i see that character as a very tragic figure but also very believable in how it portrays Mm. sudden trauma on screen yeah definitely yeah but she's uh, obviously in shock obviously (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) oh for sure uh but once we get to the farmhouse like a lot of stuff of course happens barbara of course hides out to this uh this farmhouse that's isolated in the middle of nowhere and i keep forgetting that not only how beautiful this film is shot in crisp black and white and of course george a romero was also the cinematographer and editor on this film so everyone had to work on different uh aspects of the production Mm. of this film during its low budget nature but once they get to the house and then she sort of wanders around the house tries to figure out what to do and then of course uh she run ben arrives and then once um, Dwayne Jones comes onto the screen, like, again, the sort of the unpredictable nature of this film, you never know where the story is going. Like, mm-hmm. of course, we've realized that Ben is actually our protagonist in this film. And uh, Dwayne Jones is just absolutely magnificent in this film. Like, I always forget how great and mm-hmm. captivating of an actor he is. And it kind of, for me... It's a shame that he only did a few more other films after this, like the most notable being um, Ganja and Hess, which he's also fantastic in. But every time he is on screen, he just has such a commanding presence. And as you said, uh, stated before, Marcy, like George A. Romero, he pretty much cast Jones because he was the best actor for the role. Mm. And But at the same time, though, I know Romero had to, had to change the character because in the original script for this film... The character of Ben was a tough-talking truck driver. That's how the character was written. But mm. once Dwayne was cast, both Romero and Jones changed the character to make him much more refined mm. character. But pretty much, essentially, the character is still... Out, outside of those aspects, the character is still very much the same in the script. Like, they didn't change anything else from the script. But that being said, though, if, say, for example, if a different actor played Ben... I mean, the film would still been effective, but I think having Dwayne in this role, he gives, like, again, he just gives such a commanding performance, but also with Romero casting, you know, an African-American actor in the lead role of a horror film, 
definitely adds another layer to it. Like, I know Romero said he, he didn't really do... He just, again, cast him because he was the best actor. But at the same time, though, you can't help but feel like on some on some subconscious level, like, he knew had to know that this was a big deal. And it was, mm. because at this time and period in cinema, like, a lot of films about race were becoming a big thing, with you know, films like In the Heat of the Night or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. But this one in particular, like... While those films were about having the topic of race as being the central part of their stories, having Dwayne Jones in this role, which on the surface, Night of the Living Dead doesn't deal with race, but having him mm. in this film definitely adds another subtextual mm. uh, element to this film, particularly with his interactions with everyone else in the film, particularly the uh, the character of Harry Cooper, uh, played by Carl Hardman. But like I said, Dwayne is just so magnetic in this film. And you and you know he's somebody who definitely commands, takes tries to take command of the situation because he knows what's going on. He he knows that they have to board up the house. They have to protect mm. ourselves because these zombies are going to take over. I just think he's such a, a brilliant actor. And like I said, even though he has been in other stuff since this film, I kind of wish that he had even more of a bigger career because he's such a brilliant actor in this film. Mm. he really really is like when he does show up in the film uh, things do kind of change like you have another character he's very different to Barbara and like there is just a presence about him that you just can't help but like be taken in by and he he is one of the most memorable parts of the film because he is just so freaking good and and you really kind of feel for for him as well and you really kind of get to know Ben so as the film progresses and things happen like really fucking hurts but yeah just incredible you know a place back down the road called Beatman's Beatman's Diner Anyhow, that's where I found that truck I have out there. There's a radio in the truck. I jumped in to listen to it. When a big gasoline truck came screaming right across the road. But there must have been 10, 15 of those things chasing after it. Grabbing and holding on. Now, I didn't see them at first. I could just see that the truck was moving in a funny way. Those things were catching up to it. The truck went right across the road. Slammed on my brakes to keep from hitting it myself. It went right through the guardrail. I guess, I guess the driver must have cut off the road into that gas station by Beekman's Diner. It went right through the billboard, ripped over a gas pump, and never stopped moving. By now, it's like a moving bonfire. Didn't know if the truck was going to explode or what. Could still hear the man screaming. Yeah, it's just he's just so good in this film, and he definitely adds so much with to this film mm. with his performance. 
And uh, but that whole sort of the farmhouse sequence, like once these characters start coming into play with like mm. the characters of uh, Harry and Helen Cooper, which I find their characters interesting because like very obviously Harry is an absolute asshole who thinks he's yeah. right all the time. Although he is right in one little instance where the fact that the basement is the safest place to be, which um, the character Ben does go down into the basement at the end. But also the other characters like Tom and Judy, like it's interesting kind of seeing their dynamics come together in this film and having these different characters, how they're going to handle the situation. Mm. And this is a film that doesn't have all the characters, you know, banding together mm. and agree like we need to do this. This is a film where the characters all pretty much all are in disagreement with each other mm. or at least conflicted about which side they want to fall on. So it's interesting kind of even seeing something as recently as The Mist, which also kind of deals with the t- same type of yeah. situation as well. And I know that Frank Darabont said that Night of Living There was a huge inspiration on his take on Stephen King's story, The Mist. So it's interesting kind of watching the film in that regard and just seeing all these different characters meshing together. But uh, Marcus, what is your take on the sort of the farmhouse sequence throughout uh, this part of the film? Well, it's interesting because... As Derek pointed out, it's it's such a a simplistic setting. It's just a regular farmhouse, kind of in the you know middle of nowhere, almost kind of on the outskirts, and very just secluded, you know, in a way. You you just never think that everything that happens in this movie is going to happen right there, but it does. And it, it, honestly, what makes it so effective is the fact that you know we have all these characters pretty much collide with each other, you know, in this farmhouse. And it's, I'm not going to say that it's chaos, but it's, it's just a, like a constant like barrage of disagreements and, 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 and pontificating and just, just straight up, just, I'm not going to say nonsense, but just nobody really trying to understand anyone's point of view. <laughs> I think that's honestly like the biggest downfall of everyone in this group is like no one really wants to try to put each other in each other's shoes on this very mysterious and dangerous situation. You know, they all just kind of come together in, in, in this farmhouse and, you know, they argue, they bicker, you know, as great as Ben is, I feel like at times he's a little bit too dominating. You know, and as much as a as a sleaze bag, you know, uh, Harry is, you know, I feel like he does make a few, uh, you know, correct points, you know, and it's uh, it just kind of goes to show you that when and of course, you know, all other films kind of put this in in there, too, that even when there's danger all around, even when there's death and destruction happening. In, in, a, in a completely confining, like, you know, a space, you know, people will still find time to argue. <laughs> people will still find time to bicker and have, like, little, you know, the snooty and shady comments and still get caught up in, you know, I, I think uh, one thing that really made me laugh about Harry was him, like, saying, oh, well, we, we have, like, uh, we have a child and we have these women here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like there's some kind of just flaw or just obstacle that everyone else needs to deal with when honestly, 
they're not. You know, they're people just like he is. It's funny, but it's also very heartbreaking because, you know, as you pointed out, uh, B, they don't really come together all that much. They don't say, you know, we have to band together to get through this together. They, they, they make great decisions, but a lot of horrible decisions because they're too caught up in each other and just the situation really just messing with them. I kind of feel like each character kind of displays a little bit of a, of an emotion in, in this situation. Like, like clearly Harry is like, I've read a lot of places that, uh, that uh, Harry is just a coward, but honestly, I feel like he's just so afraid that he just doesn't want to make any wrong choices. So he just thinks every choice is wrong. And Ben is, he's so determined to survive and he's so just ready to do whatever it takes that he doesn't want to see like the bigger scope of everything. And as far as like, you know, the, the, the kids are, are, you know, are concerned, they don't know what the heck to do. They're confused by everything. So they just glamp on to whoever has like the best idea, who has the best argument because they don't, they don't know either. And Barbara is, of course, as I said earlier, catatonic. So she's kind of stuck in her own headspace, her own kind of personal hell. Honestly, not I think about it, I think everybody's kind of stuck in their own personal hell. You know, brought on by the situation that none of them know what's going to happen or what the deal is or, or like where they can go or what they can do. So in a way, it, it affects their stances and their decision making and uh, and definitely their actions. Mm. And it's a, it's a very tragic scenario, mm. you know, very, uh, very nihilistic, very bleak. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's definitely a very bleak film. And I think that's mm. probably what caught so many people off guard when this film came out back in 1968 was just how bleak and nihilistic it was. Because even mm. as when I saw this film for the first time, I was even caught up by how bleak it was by the end of it. And mind you, this was only my second zombie film. The first was Return of the Living Dead Part 2, which is the complete tonal opposite of this movie. But (laughs) it's kind of interesting to me, just, yeah, but just seeing just how, like, it, it, but it's portrayed believable in this film. Like, this is exactly what would happen if a whole bunch of people in real life got together and were in this situation. This would be the kind of the scenario that this would happen. And I yeah. think Romero and everyone involved just wanted to portray that in a very believable way, which I think really works extremely well. And uh, but Derek, your take on the this section of the film, but also I kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, also the news reports, which I think are handled really well in particular in this in this section. Of yeah, the they film. actually are. Yeah. So mm. the news reports part uh, that it, that's one of the things that makes the simplicity expands so much because we're you know we have these three you know like little locations that are you know and especially inside the farmhouse you know we have the two layers up front top and then the cellar but it still feels very claustrophobic in the the radio tele uh, getting the news in that kind that expands out the world so much more we're getting stuff all the the whole eastern seaboard all the way down into texas we're finding out that all this stuff these 
mercenaries or uh, assassins as they're first termed and everything it it's crazy just hearing the evolution of the dialogue of how they're referred to as well the ghouls um as they're going along it's it's interesting to hear that side of it but coming back to ben when we first meet him you know we're like okay wow this is as a sign of strength this is somebody that's going to you know kick ass take names and but then we see that softer side of him once he realizes that barbara is shut down so much he starts he like switches gears into that caretaker mode and he's like i'm okay i'm gonna take care of you and then he even says you know i'm gonna be upstairs if somebody is trying to get in i'll hear it i'll come down and get them but I'm I'm gonna take care of this upstairs. So he's letting her know where he's going. He goes upstairs. He takes care of that body. Like he gingerly wraps up that body and then like pulls it away. And it's that's one of the great levels to his character is that he is able to switch that. But then again, as you have all mentioned, everybody gets in their own way because sadly, when I was younger i thought you know hey this is definitely a work of fiction because you know people would come together and learn and you know work together to get find the common good but as we're definitely seeing in real life that's not the case Uh, we definitely as humans we we are all in our own ways um and that lack of empathy and you know forethought for others Mm -hmm. definitely causes us to go down these roads similar to this just without flesh-eating ghouls in the midst of it so but yeah you know what's actually ironic though that i think about even more as as many times as i've seen this movie and maybe you guys can attest to this too like of course you know me being you know a black man of course i relate to ben a lot and I'm, I'm not unfortunately, but also fortunately, it's because, you know, him being, you know, a, a black man who's trying to just survive at any cost. And mm. he comes across all these people who really do kind of make it a lot more difficult for him, mm. you know. <laughs> and it, it another thing that I find interesting is that I can kind of relate to everybody else in this movie. Like everybody yeah. is in a personal like i said a personal you know hell uh, mm. of all selves but you can clearly look at each person and say you know what i could definitely see myself in that position as well mm. you know yeah. and, and that also makes it so sad <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah that's yeah it's one of the great things about sorry that's all right but i see uh, i was gonna say it's one of the great things about this film is now that i'm older i'm watching this film in a lot of ways, mm. I can see everyone's point. They all, like, even, the, like I said, like, even though, yeah, Harry is a character, he can be a bit of a dickhead throughout this whole film. But at the same time, in some ways, he's right as well. And in a lot of ways, the character of Ben is right in a lot of ways. And in some places, he is wrong because, you know, Ben, even as a character, says, we got to board up the doors and that way we're safe. But as it gets towards the end, uh, it doesn't end up working because those boards just go down completely once the zombies descend upon Mm. the house yeah i was gonna say it's almost like you know you're in a situation where this hasn't happened before you don't know what to do you have to think really quickly 
So any one of us could have been any one of these characters and they're all like just very realistic representative of just the different types of people that would be and how they would act in this scenario. And again, like the relevancy of it over the past few years, like we were just all thrown into a situation that we hadn't been in before and every everybody had an opinion on it. Everybody is saying, oh, this is the right way. No, this is the right way to do with it, blah, 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 blah. So you, it feels awfully relevant with <laughs> the past <laughs> few years and watching it, watching the film since, you know, the past, like, oh, my gosh, it's almost like three years now. There's just another element there. Yeah, well, that as well, like, I totally agree with you, Marcy. Mm. And also, like, even with the news reports in this film as well, which are done brilliantly well because George A. Romero actually got real-life reporters and newscasters Mm. to do those scenes. So there definitely adds an authentic feel to it, and I love that every time they go back to listening to the news reports, whether it's on the radio or on the television, Mm. it always updates all the time. And as we have seen, like, in news reports over over the years it's always interesting kind of seeing like how things change like or how things get updated this is new information that the newscasters are getting and this is information that our characters are trying to figure out what to do based on everything they're hearing and i also think what's also interesting is the film tries is very ambiguous about what caused the zombie Mm. out like in the news reports they say like might have had something to do with a satellite that passing earth but it only brings it up but it never really dives into it because at the end of the day even george a romero himself has said this he kind of left that purposely ambiguous anything could have easily have caused these zombies to rise up from the graves and i think those scenes are handled extremely well although the first time we see the scene with the tv i'm always put off guard because it's very obviously it's a picture of Ben next to the TV with the actual television <laughs> broadcast being superimposed. So every time that actually happens in a movie, I just can't help but giggle. But uh, yeah, so um, those scenes in particular are great. And of course, we're also forgetting uh, Harry and Helen's daughter, Karen, played by Kyra Schoen, who's actually Hardman and Eastman's real life daughter as well. So this, this was a complete family affair. She's down in the basement dying like we in hindsight know that oh she's been bitten by a zombie she's going to be become a zombie herself but it's interesting kind of again people back in 1968 not knowing where the story is going Mm. like what is going to happen to that character and so once um ben tom and judy try to go get try to get the truck filled with uh petrol and then of course that goes completely haywire and goes completely wrong then of course we come to the film's one of most controversial scenes especially at the time of course when the zombies decide to chow down on the remains of uh tom and judy and it's still a pretty hard-hitting scene i can't even imagine what people Mm. like audiences back then seeing the scene would have reacted like having seen a lot of horror films in my time like even though even in 1968 yeah this the scene would have been very violent, gory, and graphic. But then again, you know, Herschel Gordon-Lewis was making very violent and graphic <laughs> and gory films earlier in the 60s. But, you know, those were underground grindhouse exploitation films. Only, like, very little audiences would have seen. But with Night of the Living Dead kind of being shown, not in not only just in grindhouse cinemas, but also matinee cinemas, I can't even imagine how audiences mm. would have reacted to that scene but again like as i mentioned earlier in roger ebert when he saw this film everyone was just dead silent 
mm. when this scene has happened. But even then, it's still a very impactful scene. They use real life intestines for this scene and also <laughs> use actual like ham off the bone, but put chocolate sauce over it so it looked like blood. But you can mm. see these actors just going at these like these body parts and really mm. just eating them. And it is still a pretty shocking scene, even 55 years later. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's interesting, like, when you read kind of, like, how they did all that. It's, like, really, really interesting. But it still, like, it looks, like, you know, really effective. Like, it works. And I think because it is in black and white, mm. um, like, you kind of had, can get away with quite a bit because it is black and white. There is no colour. So you can kind of, yeah, use the chocolate sauce or whatever. But it still, it looks gruesome. And because I can imagine something really horrific you know kind of like cannibalism and we wouldn't really see I guess the rise in those kind of films until a few years after this I think yeah audiences back then would have been really shocked but again like if you're kind of more seasoned to um horror and this wasn't your beginning maybe it's not it might not be as shocking or blah 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 because we've seen much worse but I think when you just look at it like from what it is like yeah it is kind of horrific so yeah there's my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Marcus? How how does this uh, scene affect you as a horror fan? Ah, uh, for me, it's uh, it's it's like an equal, it's like equal parts like gruesome and very very real. Like you know, like as you said, you know they you know use different you know kind of props and stuff and 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 food intestines, you know for. For the scene but you know it's it's shot in such a very i don't want to say casual but just kind of like <laughs> like the music and everything really paints the picture of you're watching something gruesome but mm-hmm. just like seeing like the, the the act itself is is not as uh horrendous which makes it horrendous if that makes sense yeah because mm. <laughs> normally when we see zombies and everything eat into people now it's just complete splatter fest mm. like like they sh- they like they chew into someone and then the freaking blood just comes splattering out of them you know because they're you know I, I guess a squish toy but <laughs> with with this there wasn't really any of that it was very just low and just not subtle but low and and, and simple and just straight to the point in a way that's what really adds to the authenticity and oh yeah I, yeah, yeah I, 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 I was gonna, think yeah oh go ahead, go ahead go ahead i was gonna say like i think also with romero how he also shot the film as well because given that he's from a newscaster background and he kind of gives this film kind of almost a documentary type of feel which also adds another layer to the believability of this film yeah exactly well and he's coming from the, both the newscaster but then also the commercial aspect so mm. when he needs to dive in on a section and really get that detail he does it's it he's able to bounce but balance that um from going from super detailed to not um so you take a step back and you're like looking at it as a documentary style but then all of a sudden you just zoom in on this this ghoul like ripping apart stuff and it's like that his ability to tap into that aspect as well is just great how he's able to balance both aspects of that oh for sure for sure yeah and 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 also that definitely adds to because you know you guys mentioned a documentary style 
that's most likely, no, not most likely, it is pretty much what shocked so many people back in the day. Because this mm. does look particularly real. Like there's no there's no extravagancy. There's there's no there's no splatter. There's no like epicness to it. It's it's very straightforward and to the point, which probably made a lot of people think it was very much real at the time. I mean, you have to put into consideration that, you know, this being the very first ever ghoul, aka zombie film, you know, nobody had ever really seen anything like this in mainstream cinema. You know, it, it was completely unheard of at the time. All four of us were rather desensitized now when it comes to movie violence. But you kind of have to think about, like, the first time each one of us saw something that was particularly, like graphic and just you know we keep saying it but it's the truth you know bleak and you know unyielding and how that definitely affected us but the benefit of it is the big benefit of it is we already knew about horror films before we watched our first one this one nobody a lot of people didn't know about it yet a lot of people didn't even know the idea of horror and 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 blood and, and guts and, and and death was even something that could be filmed this provocatively until this film. There you go. Like like no wonder so many people were you know shocked and kids crying and reports and everything yeah. like that because <laughs> yeah, going from the movie, universal like it, those which are basically dramas. Mm. I mean, mm. they they are horror horrific dramas, of course. But then, mm. yeah, to this, I mean, sure, there is the the grindhouse side of things. Um, but again, that's not public. This was, I mean, it started out as a mm. B movie in it drive-ins. It was the it was literally the B movie that was played later on when every you know when most people were like pulling out and uh, heading out. But then it they switched it to an A movie and that, and then they were bringing it into like the matinees and that definitely, yeah, that would be a big shock to the system <laughs> going from that. So. We probably oh, cry too. Yeah, we, <laughs> for sure. I know, oh, I de- especially oh, I definitely will. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because I was watching the documentary Birth of the Living Dead, which I already mentioned earlier. There's actually a scene where a class of students like young kids are actually being shown Night of oh. the Living Dead for the first time, which is um, no, they were totally into the movie. Like they were totally into it because they did a little discussion about the film and everything. So it's definitely worth just seeing those scenes in the. Mm. I mean, that whole documentary is really good. So definitely check it out if you haven't. Then of course, once we get past that very gory scene, that's when things kind of just our Marcy, you, mine, and our co-host on. On the Two B Tuesdays podcast, Batch would say, uh, "At fuck this shit o'clock," um, <laughs> where uh, things kind of go completely haywire. Everybody, mm. the whole situation has lost control. People start dying. The zombies descend on the house. Ben and everyone are trying to stop the zombies from getting in. And even Barbara, you know, she starts to come out of her catatonic state to help out. And then, of course, mm. she's dispatched very quickly once she sees that one of the zombies is her brother Johnny. And again, when I saw this film for the first time, I was really shocked by that scene because I was like, oh, that's our heroine. This is our one of our mm. main characters. She's dead. Like, we don't see her die. Hence why uh, there's an un, a still unreleased uh, 
unofficial prequel sequel to this movie called Night of Living Dead 2 Genesis that has the scenario like, what happened if Barbara survived that night? Um, <laughs> but yeah, she gets dispatched. And then, of course, um, the character of Karen, Harry and Helen's daughter, dies, becomes a zombie. And in this very, again, another very shocking scene where she stabs her mother to death. And again, you know, the zombie rules are still being worked on in this film. Like, zombies do use weapons in this film. But that mm. scene in particular is still very shocking because, A, it's, you know, a child murdering an adult. But also that kind of the disorientating sound effects in that scene. Mm. Like the way like, it's not just the mother just screaming. It's very dis- distorted. It feels almost like otherworldly. And rewatching that mm. scene, it almost feels like when you are dying and you're being stabbed to death or any horrible thing like everything around you it just slows down and becomes disordered that's mm. the kind of thing i feel like and that just adds another abs another layer of creepiness and almost mm. disturbing feel to that scene is because of that sound effect which uh just really unsettles me every time i watch this film I think actually, you know, having a child as a zombie, like, yeah, we've seen that kind of stuff more now, but, like, back then in a film, like, generally you don't expect that, but here it's like, whoa, they actually went there. Okay, then. Like, it is still very (laughs) shocking. Um, It always surprises me because I kind of forget it's there, and then when I'm watching it, it's like, oh, shit, yeah, they, they went there. Oh, they did. They definitely yeah. did. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm sort of curious about Marcus and Derek, uh, your thoughts on that scene in particular with the sound effect. Like, what is your guys' take on that? Well, for me, I think it's because, of course, yes, it's 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 very shocking. But I think what makes it like all the more just brutal is the fact that the kid does use a weapon. Like that's the mm. like doesn't even try to snack on her mom at all. Just grabs a whack weapon and goes to Poketown. And it's it's very and I and I think another thing I liked about it was they uh they showed it from different angles from the mom's perspective, from the kid's perspective, and of course the wall with the shadow. Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, very effective because you know once again it it you know you don't have to put too much blood and guts in there but the imagery is completely out there speaks for itself very potent very vicious and and yeah you know you at first when you watch it you're just like oh okay and then of course you know you you think about the time period 
Hell, that's probably where the kids started crying in the theater. Because, mm. <laughs> or, you know, a few very demented ones got some ideas. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very, considering everything else that's going on at the time, uh, you know, with the, with the horde kind of overrunning the house and everything like that, you know, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a huge reminder of what this film definitely represents as far as, like, even with all the dangers going on outside, there's still plenty of it inside. And it mm. comes from the person or people that you least expect. And it's, uh, again, you know, <laughs> really gets back into that whole tragic de- depression part of the film. Oh, yeah. And in a way, you could see, like, with that scene happening with Karen killing her mother and then, of course... Uh, <laughs> and then eventually uh, chowing down on her dad. In a way, it's interesting because you could see this this scene as being a metaphor to the death of the nuclear family, which was kind of a big thing during the 50s and 60s, which I think is pretty interesting. But uh, Derek, yourself. So, yeah, I, one of the things I loved is we saw the, the whole evolution of, you know, her, they're caring for her, and then all of a sudden, then she's, kind of like past and then you know her coming back and then attacking it's just like ah i loved just seeing that whole part uh one other thing i just read was um kyra sean she actually played the corpse that was upstairs as well that ben drags away oh really so (laughs) so she she actually you know she was the uh, the little kid zombie but then she was also the corpse upstairs that um ben takes care of later or earlier on so i thought that was pretty interesting <laughs> i did not know that so that that was information even new to me so <laughs> there you go you yeah. can still learn more about this movie babe exactly oh. exactly <laughs> yes and then uh once the zombies kind of descend upon the house start destroying everything inside ben of course goes down to the basement because he realizes that it definitely is the safest place he needs to be. And then eventually has to kill all three of the family because they've all now become zombies. And of course, like I, what I really love about the scene, like is how Dwayne Jones, it's out of chaos upstairs and he's downstairs. And this is a point of the film. You can definitely see his facade starting to fade. Like he is terrified. Even he doesn't know what's going to happen. Like, mm. is he going to die? Is Are they going to come crashing in and yeah, uh, kill him? And then, breaking point, for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah. And then once we get to the ending of this film, which when I saw this ending for the first time, it really punched me in the gut because, again, I was not expecting this film mm. to go that way, which, of course, uh, the zombies are all gone from the house. Uh, and the group was sort of like the sheriff who uh, in the film is played by George Casada. And he, like a lot of the scenes when you see him in news bulletins, a lot, he improvised all that, his dialogue, particularly one of the famous lines uh, from the film. It's like, oh yeah, these zombies, they're all messed up. Just shoot them in the head and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. of course him and his, and the lo- and the locals get together, go around, shoot the zombies and then, of course, they find the farmhouse and Ben decides it's safe to come up and because he, he hears them coming. So he knows that helps arrive. And then, of course, unknowingly, the sheriff and his men accidentally shoot Ben through the window, believing he was a zombie. From my knowledge about of this film, especially in the making of it, 
that ending was always going to be in this film. Like it was never going to change at all. Mm. Like Romero always wanted this film to have a bleak ending, Mm. but with the casting of Dwayne Jones, this ending has an even bigger punch as well. Mm. Not just sort of the, especially around the time with, you know, the civil rights movement at the time in the sixties was in full swing. And then of course, when this film was in post-production and they were going around looking for distributors for this film, that's when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm. So that was definitely on the minds of George A. Romero and the cast and crew, and also probably even the audience, particularly critics when they watch this Mm. film. But even then, 55 years later, after when this film came out, this ending still packs a punch, especially Mm. in how it's made, especially using photos, as well, which mm. I think also adds another layer of it, it sort of unsettling feeling throughout the scene. And it just some it, it's a very bleak note to mm. end the film on. But at the same time, though, it does pack a punch and it has a lot of power to it. And it even brings mm. home a lot of the themes that Romero and co were wanting to achieve with this film. Yeah, it's. It still shocks me, like, even though I know it's coming, it just, it really is a gut punch when it happens, because Ben has made it out, but these, you know, the guys are just there shooting zombies, they're not really giving a shit, and they just see someone in there without even looking, like, is it because, um, you know, it's an African-American guy and they just really don't care, uh, do they just assume everything's been a zombie, like, it's open to interpretation, but the fact is they just see him, oh, better shoot it. Like, dude, what the fuck? It really is the bleakest note you could end the film on after everything we've been through. And it still hits as hard no matter how many times you see it, especially after you've gone through everything you go through and that fantastic performance. Like, that movie is just seriously like, fuck you. <laughs> wow, thanks, movie. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Marcus? What is your take on the ending of this film? Oh, man. Um, I've gone through different phases with it. <laughs> when I first saw it, it pissed me off. Like, I was angry. I was just like, you cannot tell me that after all of that, after everything that this guy has gone through, everything he's had to do, everything... Every shot, every grab, every stab, every nail to a board, every conflict, every, you know, every punch, every everything, he gets just casually shot. And, you know, it, um, and I went through my phases with it on why, because I went through the whole, like, well, they don't really give a shit, they're racist. They're a bunch of rednecks who just want to shoot things and they don't care who it is. You know, I, I went through my phases within a phase. <laughs> but, um, after watching it a few other times, honestly, I still kind of feel the same way. Uh, <laughs> like, so, there have been a few times I've actually watched this movie and I just kind of stopped it after it goes from, you know, night to daytime. And I just make I just make up my head. Oh well, you know, Zombie's left, and you know, Ben's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, then other times I'm just like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna get the whole entire picture. And then you know, I watch the ending, and then as you say, it's it's a it's a gut punch, but it's also you know, uh, once again, 
you know, in keeping with what I said uh, earlier, and of course, you know, one of the many, 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 many themes themes is as best this movie has, that even in a zombie apocalypse, people are still going to be people, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and mm-hmm. that's like one of the biggest punches to the gut of them all, you know? Mm-hmm. And I very much commend, I, 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 I criticize, but also commend, you know, Romero <laughs> for, for keeping that in there and making that kind of ending because it's one of the main things that has really uh, kept this movie so high up on, mm-hmm. on the scale when it comes to being that legendary status. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. And it it amazes me, too, like reading up a lot about this film, that when they were shopping it around, trying to find the distributor, a lot of the places they went to, it's like, we like the movie, we want to distribute it, but we want you to change the ending. And Romero, like they could have easily have done that. This is like big main studios like Columbia Pictures and a few others. But, you know, Romero stuck to his guns like, no, this this ending needs to be part of the film. That's the whole point of this film is that ending. And I got to commend Romero for that. But Derek, are your thoughts on uh, the ending of this film? So growing up, um, I was always a fan of tragedies. I blame it on being exposed to Empire Strikes Back at a way too young of an age. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I love a down down ending. Mm. And this is definitely a downer ending. But it, it hits you so hard, but it also... It, it hits on so many different levels. Like as Marcus said, you know, there's the racism aspect. There's the, I mean, it dispels the the myth of a good guy with a gun. Um, the whole, mm-hmm. you know, we need a well-armed militia to hand, uh, to be able to handle things. Well, mm. it doesn't exactly protect our people um, when there's just somebody <laughs> just is able to randomly do that. That's uh, one of the uh, things that uh, that did stick with me, you, you know, either watching it younger um, all the way to seeing it now. It's just, mm. do we need that easy access to this? Um, because in the wrong hands, we're all capable of being victims, not just to the zombies, but to our own selves. Mm. Oh, definitely. And it's, it's, and that, that's one of the great things about this film is it has a lot of interesting layers to it and what makes us question us as people. Even just like sort of talking about like discussing on this podcast so far, just all the different things we can take away from this film. And, and it's interesting, like we all have our own different thoughts and opinions on this film. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like this film, the way it ends and the impact it has there's only kind of just one way to sort of take that ending i mean again it's you know have different thoughts on that ending but i guess for me it just it just still has that punch Mm. and again that's what makes this film still as relevant and as timely as it is is because Mm. of that ending and the power it has on cinema and again like when this film came out again critics kind of went like eh on it but then of course over the 55 years after its release it has now been hailed as a classic of cinema not just horror cinema but just all of cinema and mm. it again it spawned an entire new subgenre of film 
And in 1999, mm. the film was deemed culturally and historically and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and selected for preservation at the National Film Registry. And yes, I did read that. Um, <laughs> just so I didn't mess up anything there. But mm. also one of the most uh, famous things about this film is it's a public domain film. And there's a reason for that, because early in production, when uh, and one of my favorite things about this film is originally in its early stages, it was going to be an alien based horror comedy called Monster Flick. And <laughs> which is basically the so from what I read, like my information on this plot. And I don't know how Night of the Living Dead came out of this initial plot for this film, which, of course, mm. uh, the early screenplay was uh, about the exploits of an adolescent aliens who visit Earth and befriend human teenagers, which sounds like the plot to uh, mine and Marty's Voyage favorite. of the Rock <laughs> Aliens? <laughs> yes, exactly. So is Voyage of the Rock Aliens the movie version of the early screenplay of Night of the Living Dead, I wonder? Might have been. Um, Might have been. It could so, be. Bede, it could... So, Bede, could this podcast have been titled originally bead versus the monster flick yes it could it could have been and um (laughs) and then of course another version of the script had a young man who runs away from home that discovers rotting human corpses that aliens use as food scattered across a meadow and then of course russo came up with the concept that it would be the recently dead only because they Mm. could not afford to bring back long dead people out of their grades because they'll be more skeletal and then, of course, uh, Russo came up with the idea that they would be flesh eaters. And then, of course, it kind of changed from there. Romero, of course, called them ghouls. Uh, so when this film was being written, the title of the film was Night of the Flesh Eaters. However, mm-hmm. the few years earlier, there was already a film called The Flesh Eaters. And they actually sent a cease and desist letter to Romero and co. And also the uh, distributor that they went with in the end. To, they can't use the Flesh Eaters title. They need to change it. Romero decided to change the film to Night of Anubis, which is definitely... <laughs> uh, but, of course, the uh, studio felt like that's a bit too pretentious of a title. Um, <laughs> so they decided to change it to Night of the Living Dead. But during the process of doing that, they forgot to put the copyright symbol on the title, Night of the Living Dead. And then immediately, even though the film actually did really well, at the box office at the time of its release, it immediately went into public domain. So Romero and co barely saw a cent from this film. Mm. And as you can see, and you're, and that is the reason why if you go to any DVD shop, any supermarket or get big compilations of, of movies that have like hundreds of movies on them or horror films, night of the living dead is always going to be on there because of its public domain status. And because of this, it is also the most remade horror film in cinema history. And it's been remade so many times. And so many people have done different versions of this film or re-edited it to their own pleasure. Hence why I created the show in this in the first place. So it's just fascinating to me, like one simple mistake changed everything about this film. I mean, if that copyright symbol was on the film, I probably would not have this podcast. No. Like, <laughs> so, but at the same time, though, and I was re- doing my research, I watched some really cool uh, YouTube videos on Night of the Living Dead. And one of them in particular I found very interesting is not only if that copyright symbol was on Night of the Living Dead, not only would Romero would have copyright on the film, 
he would also have had the intellectual likeness property on zombies mm. as well. So similar to how Universal has the likeness rights of Frankenstein's right. monsters for, you know, their Universal mm. monsters. Because if you notice, mm. though, anytime Frankenstein is in a film outside of Universal, he doesn't look the same. And there's mm. a reason for that, because Universal has the intellectual property on that likeness. In a way, if Romero wanted to, he could have had the intellectual property likeness of mm. zombies. So if that happened, would the zombie genre that we know and love today, would it even be what it is? Because mm. Romero the first, would have been had to go, anyone who wanted to make a zombie film would have had to have gone to Romero first to even get permission to even use a likeness of a zombie or even had to create their own version of what a zombie looks mm. like, which I think is incredibly fascinating hence why i'm doing a podcast on this <laughs> oh my god uh, i know right it's it's fascinating and uh that's why i'm looking forward to going on this journey on the all these different versions of night of mm. living dead i mean i didn't even we didn't even touch on the fact that uh richard matheson's novel i am legend was also an influence on this film particularly with romero knowing that because he loved that novel but with I Am Legend, that was already, like, way deep into the apocalypse. And Romero mm. thought, even in the early days of this uh, apocalypse. And basically, Night of Living Dead is, in a way, kind of an unofficial prequel to the I Am Legend novel. <laughs> because he sees the zombies as the characters as a form of revolution. But it's such a fascinating thing about this film. And we could easily do so much discussion on Night of Living Dead. But I think that could be a wrap on this episode, this debut episode of mm. Bead versus the Living Dead. And uh, I want to say thank you for everyone who has listened to this debut episode. It was a, uh, uh, it really means a lot to me. And also thank you, Marcy, Marcus, and Derek for coming on and talking about this monumental masterpiece, game-changing film with me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, most definitely. Oh, yeah, and congratulations <laughs> on your debut episode. Woo! Yes. Woo-hoo! I knew this was going to be a long one, so I apologize for our audience if this was a bit longer than expected. But, I mean, we ha- this is Night of the Living Dead. We have so much to talk about with exactly. this film. And if we did, like, a 20-minute podcast, it would not do this film no. justice. But, yeah, once again, exactly, exactly. And, uh, and... And thank you guys for coming on, giving me your perspectives of this film. This has been a lot of fun. And I've already said this before, you're all welcome to come back on the show <laughs> anytime you like in the future. I can't guarantee any of the movies that I cover for this show uh, will be good um, <laughs> or be as uh, amazing as this film was. But uh, I think they'll still make for fun discussions regardless. But uh, yes, uh, so that will be a wrap on this show. But uh, before we wrap up tonight uh marcy where can people find you on the internet this week yes uh you can find me at supermarcy.com that's s-u-p-e-r-m-a-r-c-e-y as the home to the super network where uh bead and uh marcus are part of the team uh we do podcasts and reviews and all sorts of good stuff so everything uh you can see is there i also do uh my own podcast like Bead here. Uh, it's called After Dark Super Marcy Podcast. And 
that can also be found. Uh, I'm sure that I've got links on the website, but uh, if not, uh, you can find me on Twitter at SuperMarcy and all that good stuff. I uh, repost and post so you can see all that. And uh, I'm on the letterbox at Super underscore Marcy. Indeed. And I'll make sure to put uh, both your all those links on the uh, podcast post for <laughs> this episode, Marcy. <laughs> so so people can check out uh, not only the, all the podcasts Marcy and I co co-host together, but also Marcy's awesome show, after dark i mean at some point marcy you might have to uh do a discussion of the porn parody of this film night of the giving head i mean it's very likely that'll happen so <laughs> but uh marcus where can people find you on the internet this weekend also finally welcome to twitter as well i know i was about to say i finally got with the times and i am finally on twitter so you can find me on there with uh, Ego Critic Demise. That's my official handle at the moment. I don't know if I'm going to change it. But uh, if not there, you can find me on Facebook and Letterboxd, uh, Marcus Will Turner, W-I-L-T-U-R-N-E-R. Awesome. Uh, I'm finally, I'm finally, I'm finally with the times. <laughs> indeed, <laughs> indeed. I mean, I mean, how dare you take, I mean, how dare you take this long to join us? One I of know, us. Right? One of us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, exactly. And uh, Derek, where can people find you on the internet this week? Um, this week you can find me on Twitter and Letterbox, both at Darathus. That's D-A-R-A-T-H-U-S. Um, also, um, from time to time, post articles over at NeonSplatter.com. Uh, so check those out um on my twitter i actually have a pinned thread going with any of my links so if you want to just check those there you can or you can check out neonsplatter.com and just search for Derek smith awesome and if people want to find me personally they can find the official twitter account of bead versus the living dead at bead verse tld so that is b-e-d-e-v-s tld so you can follow the official twitter account of this podcast there but for me personally you can find me on my personal twitter account which of course is at bejamine which is of course is b-e-d-e-j-e-r-m-y-n i just have to make sure to spell that out because nobody can spell bejamine properly i i've learned that for my entire life <laughs> <laughs> but i figured i'll just do that for all of our listeners here but you can also find me on letterboxd at letterbox.com slash bejamine and also you can find all my work over at supermarcy.com as well and of course you can find all the all the pod, other podcasts that i co-host with supermarcy like super podcasts podcasters of horror the to be tuesdays podcast uh the osboy cast and as well as the king zone podcast on the super network so you can listen to all of us, listen to Marcy and I there. <laughs> but uh, once again, thank you for everyone for listening to this debut episode of Beat vs. the Living Dead. I hope you all had a really good time listening to it. And be back in two weeks in which Marcy will rejoin me once again, and as well as joined by another guest as our first <laughs> Uh, step into the remakes, reimaginings, homages, and unofficial follow-ups to Night of the Living Dead, in which we will discuss the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead, which was directed by Tom Savini. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you all then. See everybody. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Feed vs. the Living Dead. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Keep up on all updates of the show on the official Twitter account at FeedVSTLD. The music for this show was brought to you by Denno. See you next time, everyone. Goodbye.